London is like a giant clock, a mechanism regulated by traffic lights, where time can be measured in the revolutions of a fixed wheel bike seized in the gaps of the traffic flow. It's a place where maps and schematics can distort time and space, yet ensure everything runs to the minute, more or less. This is the Bone Shaker cast. I'm Gary Fool. This is part two of our Ride on the Wheels of Time, the first show, and we'll be talking with two masters of their own time, ex-London cycle couriers turned writers John Day and Emily Chapel, to explore the city with mind, body and bike. It's probably worth mentioning John Day's notions of cyclogeography before we venture any further. It's the title of his new book and a play on the pretty well-trodden expression psychogeography, which in a nutshell is about how our perceptions can change depending on the way we interact with and move through a place. Taken as an approach to life, in particular city life, psychogeography is about finding ways of using a physical derive to take a mental meander, to open up more creative, inquiring and less obvious ways to view the world. Once upon a time, Bristol was three minutes slower than London, then came Ruth Belleville. She used to go to the Greenwich Observatory every Monday morning and set her watch by official Greenwich Mean Time and then courier the time around the city. And she'd be selling time to clockmakers or horologists. National time was beginning to be imposed by the railways, so as soon as the railways come, the whole of Britain needs to be run on the same timetable, so the time in Bristol or wherever needs to be the same as the time in London so that when the train leaves London and takes two hours to get somewhere, it's two hours later in the place gets to and yet this was a very human story about a person who's who walked around the city or got public transport and yet was taking the time with them when they went and there's a nice similarity between the seller of time who moves through the city with her watch of ticking cogs and wheels and the modern day cycle courier peddling their mechanism to deliver a package on time time becomes money Step back and we can see London as a giant clock, kept working by the regularity of its mechanisms within. There's that wonderful scene in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, you know, where the, the, the tramp figure's kind of running around a conveyor belt and, and living his life as a mechanised human being. Couriering and cycling generally is one of those activities that's so much about the meeting of bodies and machines in various ways and the organic and the kind of mechanised and all of those lovely metaphors. And I love the way the bike kind of measures out the city, especially I used to ride a fixed gear bike like many couriers do. There's that, that sense that you know exactly not just how long it's going to take you but exactly how many kind of pedal revolutions it's going to take you to get from A to B or rather not that I knew that in abstract terms but that that could be computed there's that kind of sense that it's it's a giant machine a giant machine whose movements are regulated by the vast network of traffic lights There's that wonderful scene in a film by um, Hitchcock called Sabotage, which is connected with uh, Greenwich in an interesting way because it's based on Joseph Conrad's novel The Secret Agent. OK, I think it's worth saying a bit about The Secret Agent, which is set in London at a time when the clock has become revered. It's become a kind of symbol of what it means to be civilised. So, anarchists decide that the best way to attack the status quo is to take out Greenwich Observatory with a bomb. 
in Hitchcock's film Sabotage, there's this, there's this amazing scene where I probably should give you a spoiler warning, but there's a there's a guy delivering a bomb to Piccadilly Circus on a bus. First he walks around a bit and then eventually gets on this bus. And you know the bomb's going to go off at a certain time and he doesn't. And it's an amazing montage, one of the kind of great early montages in, in, in world cinema. Hitchcock keeps cutting between sort of public clocks ticking down the time, the bomb clock ticking down, and the traffic lights that the bus, as the bus moves through London and is regulated by these other kind of escarments. Definitely, I think, a sense in, in, in urban riding anyway, where the rhythms of traffic, and as regulated by, or not if you're a cyclist maybe, by um, traffic lights, begin to impose their own kind of rhythms and movements. In Cyclogeography, John writes, with its signs and painted hieroglyphics, the road is an encyclopedia of movement. Drive here, walk here, park here, no stopping here. Look down and the tarmac tells you what to do. Very soon, the rhythms of the street become internalised. Traffic lights and vehicle indicators, the wails of sirens and car alarms, warn you to get out of the way or lure you on. You're moving at speed, trying to negotiate constant obstacles in several different dimensions. This is Emily Chapel. One of the things I miss is the riding in and out of traffic. It's this very almost unique form of movement and concentration because you're dealing with so many obstacles all the time. But you're trying to get from one place to another via certain roads. On those roads, you're also trying to draw a line in and out of all the, you know, the potholes and the drain covers and the, the junctions and things. And then you've got all these moving obstacles. You've got all the cars and all the pedestrians and all the other things coming at you from all angles. So every second, there's a different sort of challenge you're working through. John writes, eventually you come to feel part of the city's secret networks, at one with its hidden rivers and its dead letter drops, at one removed from its anonymous crowds of commuters. In What Goes Around, Emily talks about the time before she became a courier. I wasn't the only one who rode the seven miles to work and wished that I could carry on all day. I noticed them more and more, shooting through the traffic ahead of me, radios crackling. Sometimes I try and keep up with one following his lines between the cars, copying his hesitations and accelerations, and the way he balanced his bike through the curves, mustering the confidence to ride through smaller and smaller gaps when I saw that he made it through them just fine. Usually he, they were always men, would lose me when we got to a red light, where I'd stop and he'd race straight across the junction, a split second before the traffic surged in. Whenever a courier delivered to an office where I was working, I'd gaze at him like an awestruck schoolgirl, desperate to identify myself as a fellow cyclist and to ask him about his job, but too shy to puncture his surly mystique. I think for me, I worked out after a few years of doing it, it wasn't so much about speed, it was about flow. It felt more like dancing and you're trying to keep up the grace and the momentum. You get very good at cycling through the traffic at speed and you get, it's, it's exciting being good at something and it's satisfying and it's exhilarating and it becomes this, um, well when it's all going well it's like an art form. 
It was about things like getting the route absolutely right, like choosing one street over another and timing the lights, timing the junctions, managing to find the streets that are quieter and that get you there more directly and drawing the straightest lines and little little games like that. The kind of games you play like, you know, kicking a stone along the ground all the way to school. The pointless little challenges. You know, you might try and, almost unconsciously, try and get from one side of town to the other without putting a foot down. And if something goes wrong and, you know, you have to stop, then you've kind of ruined it for yourself. The slowest thing you can do is to cycle too quickly, get caught running a red light and then get stopped by the police. You really want to be kind of neutral and invisible and not draw attention to yourself in any way to do it, just to bang out the jobs. Navigation like that does become a kind of bodily thing. Once you're doing it every day and you know the circuit well enough, you get such a good sense of almost to the minute how long it's going to take you to get from, you know, Soho to Angel or whatever. Like you have this kind of private map that you develop. When I started in 2006, when I was first career, everyone used the A to Z, and then about two years ago, I stopped. I left the road and you know people using their phones much more even that transition is is i think changes the relationship you have with urban space i mean nowadays you see people kind of walking around the street just looking at their screen and i think even when people needed to use the a to z at least they'd have a kind of snapshot of a schematic that they then try and remember before you know they'd know that they had to go down it was the third on the left or whatever. Nowadays, people are literally following the dot. and I think that's kind of weird, the disconnection you get. You're experiencing yourself on a, as a blip on a screen rather than as a body moving through space and time. I'm not saying it's, it's all gone to rack and ruin and that we shouldn't be doing this necessarily, but I think it's an interesting change, an interesting transition. I had this really big, bizarre experience when, when Google Street View first came in of you know, looking up the house I used to live at and seeing myself fixing a tire on the doorstep of my house. So the car had gone by without me realising. When they first did the mapping, I was on the road quite a lot, so I used to see those cars quite a lot. And then I sort of tracked down where, I, where I'd seen the car while I was working, and you can sort of follow me down Pal Mal you could for a while. So, I, you know, that sense of becoming part of this weird digital map of a territory that you know so intimately through the bike, I found quite eerie. For most of human history, information could only travel at the rate of a human body, really. So to actually transfer complicated information, for a long time it required a messenger of some kind to bring it. And that's still kind of the case with, with couriering. It's amazing how couriers have managed to hang on in these times of sort of big data transfer on the internet and so on, because it's still more efficient to send a hard drive stuffed with lots of information than it is to email a big file. We're still quicker than the internet across short distances. And think about it, we can take a period of time, track the packages a courier delivers and who they're delivering to, and piece together a colourful history of London. Like the rushes from a TV production house travelling to the broadcaster, cash to a ticket tout in a pub, or a timely legal document raced across town for a signature to set the wheels in motion for another string of events. The majority, I suppose, of the stuff I carried was, was physical stuff, stuff that couldn't be emailed. So a couple of times I used to pick up in kind of Brick Lane sweatshops a, a garment that would then be taken to a, a fashion shoot in a magazine somewhere in, in Soho and that's that's yeah so those kinds of connections are really intriguing you become part of the kind of lines of economy of a city the lines of economy of a city 
Well, the job itself isn't that well paid. It can be precarious, exhausting, and anyone who just rides to and from work in London has an idea of how grubby it would be to do all the time. But both John and Emily, like many others, get locked into this giant machine of London. Why did I start off thinking, oh, I might do this for six weeks, or maybe I'll do it for six months, and then six years later, I was still doing it and I still wasn't bored. Without an exit strategy, it becomes quite a difficult and dangerous one. You're self-employed subcontractors. No one's got pensions or, or sick pay or anything like that. So if you if you get to 40 or 50 and you're still on the road and you don't have a get-out plan... There's a strong rhetoric within the industry of, like, you don't get stuck, don't get stuck, because if you do it for too long, you're not going to be fit for anything else, but you're going to need to get out. You're never going to make that much money. And if you get to the point where, you know, you're injured or you've got a family, you're going to need to make more money somewhere else. Some people, you know, go into the office and become controllers and lots of people, well, a few people I know, were doing the knowledge alongside it, so become cabbies. This odd <laughs> poacher come become gamekeeper type thing. I always knew I would have to get out of it eventually. It's not the kind of job you can do your whole life. But I never wanted to. I... I was happier and happier doing it and it suited me and I grew into it and I got so much from it. It's a physical job, you're not paid very much and, and yet the freedoms you're kind of given in return are what makes it attractive I think to a lot of people. So I sort of imagined I'd get to the stage where I wanted to quit but didn't really know what that would be and also wasn't looking forward to it because a lot of people they get out of couriering and they kind of slide downhill a bit. You know, they're, suddenly they're doing a desk job and their lives get more complicated and busy and stressed and they put on a bit of weight and they lose fitness and they're, they're a bit less happy because they don't have all the endorphins going on every day. And I didn't... I thought that was inevitable. And I thought, well, here I am at the height of my powers. I don't want this to end. I don't want to become this kind of pale shadow of myself that I'd be... And then what happened... ..was Emily started to venture beyond and make bigger journeys. I tried to cycle around the world. I haven't quite finished yet. It's quite a big planet, but... I made it across Asia and I've done quite a few other trips and started to realise that there was more beyond London. And I think this realisation took a few years because I still loved London. It was like ending a relationship very, very gradually. You just start to move on as people and you still love each other, but you realise there are other options. I was cycling through Alaska and Yukon and I was just, it was very hard, but I was in love with the, the, the open spaces and the, the whiteness and the cold and the fact that it was almost completely uninhabited. And I was thinking, God, I really don't want to go back to London. And I just thought, I don't need to do this. There's so many roads where there are not a million other vehicles and people shouting at each other and things. And so I just gradually went off it. And my last few months in London, I wasn't, I wasn't couriering anymore. And I just kind of had enough. I'll, I'll never entirely be out of love with couriering. I'd still like to go back for a bit. When I cycle in London, I still use all the subconscious techniques I've built up over the years. It probably has changed my brain chemistry in many ways. So Emily lives in Wales now, and John is now an English lecturer at King's College London. 
You should definitely read about their distinctly individual and personal love affairs with the Courier Life. Emily's is called What Goes Around and is published by Guardian Faber, and John's is Cyclogeography and is on Notting Hill Editions. There's a wonderful story about Emily's ride through Asia in issue 13 of Boneshaker, where upon trying to get away from the time constraints of couriering in London, she found herself racing across a thousand miles of China in 10 days because of an expiring visa. There's also an excerpt from Cyclogeography in issue 17, where John writes about a distinctly English alley cat race. You've been listening to the Bone Shaker cast. I'm Gary Fall. Music in this show has been by myself, with drumming from the glorious stickmaster Dave Collingwood. There's also been tracks by Telography, Rod Hamilton, Blue Dot Sessions, and David Edwards. Please do continue to subscribe on your favourite podcast app or via the Bone Shaker podcast page. And goodbye for now. <laughs>